Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex. Today's show is pretty exciting. We have joining us the legend, Hung Lee from Recruiting Brain Food. But before I go too much further, I'd like to introduce my co-host, the lovely, the talented, Serge Boudreaux. Serge, how are you? Doing great. I always love your intros because uh, you're either a legend, uh, lovely, or talented. So that's always uh, a positive thing. So I hope our our guest doesn't it doesn't go to his head. Uh, even though I do consider him a legend in in this industry. So how about um, how about exactly how about I do a brief intro for our special guest? Okay. So he has spent 15 years in recruitment in practically any recruitment role that you can think of. So. Right now, he is the chief curator at RecruitingBrainFood.com, and you should go on and subscribe right now if you're listening to this, and is the co-founder and CEO of Workshape.io. So, Hung, welcome. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. It seems that we, um, so yesterday we had Katrina Collier uh, on the show and now we have you so we've got a pretty good uh, London representation I think you guys used to work together too right absolutely uh, sort of uh, kind of one of the uh, fun facts of a nice relationship which a lot of people don't know but back in the day we used to work in the same business um, for, a, for a brief period maybe six to nine months something of that type um, and she worked the contract floor out the, uh, the firm desk. Um, but, uh, we knew who we, ch- we, uh, we knew each other. Uh, and I think we were friends at that time, but it was, it was fun to kind of meet up again, sort of when we both exited from the agency world and ended up doing what we're doing. Um, and then meeting up sort of in our, in our kind of new careers, so to speak. Um, but yeah, we shared our bond and, uh, it's great to have Katrina in my, in my past and in my present, you know? <laughs> no, she was she was fantastic. So it's interesting you talk about your career path because I'm really curious. Most people that start in recruitment kind of fall into it. Um, I don't think anyone goes into college thinking, hey, I'm going to go in recruitment when I get out. So tell me about your career path in recruitment. How did you start? How basically did we get here? Oh, so I'm I'm the one guy that chose this. Um, uh, <laughs> Serge. I mean, I did I did think. Yeah. Uh, so this was no accident. Um, it was a case of, um, you know, me being at university and uni, by the way, was me just def- deferring important decisions, right? So it was like literally, hey, I really don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Let's just not make a decision on this. Let's take a five-year course. Um, <laughs> so that was that was basically what I was doing. Um, but I emerged obviously from into that without any further idea what the hell I was doing. Um, I studied anthropology at university, which is a wonderful degree course. Um, uh, At some point, I had uh, a vague vision of being some sort of like Indiana Jones type character, you know, uh, going out and doing ethnographies of these amazing people. Um, But I swiftly realized that actually there's no way you can make any money doing that. Um, (laughs) And and I had this sort of crisis. um, And I thought, you know what, what I got to do is to really, I've, I've got to, kind of abandon uh, naive ideas, I guess, um, in terms of, you know, what the world looks like and really get to grips with what it what it really is. Um, and it was a world that obviously ran on being able to, to make your way. Um, and it, I had to make a fairly brutal decision just to say, okay, how am I going to make money um, with the skills that I have and the skills that I don't have? You know, where is the fit? Um, and at that time, it was... Um, it was uh, a case where, you know, this is where one era, so everyone's building internet type companies. Um, you know, this is the, the aging myself here, but you know, early, early noughties, that kind of time. Um, and I tried to do programming. So I thought, you know what, maybe programming is the pathway for me. Um, and I ended up writing a bit of uh, HTML and a bit of JavaScript at that time took me about four four days to do a single page i realized oh my god hong if you went and did this you'd be at best mediocre and you'd be miserable um so no you're not going to be a programmer but maybe you can help those companies grow in another way um and and the the world of recruitment kind of opened up it was like hey why don't i recruit these people into these companies um and maybe i can figure out a way where i can you know join one of these tech tech startups uh, in some fashion, having done some recruitment for them. 
Um, and that was basically the start of uh, start of the journey uh, for Hong Lee as a recruiter. And so how long did you do that for? Like how many years were you like actually out there bringing, you know, slinging people into the companies? Was it agency or were you? Recruiter, yeah. yeah. I was agency nine years, Shelley. So, oh, okay. so I worked, um, you know, a good, good part of the decade. So from 2000 to 2009, I was working agency side, um, always in the tech recruiting uh, sort of angle, mm-hmm. um, mainly on the internet and, and that type of thing. So I ended up doing a lot of those types of uh, uh, you know, working with those cool businesses um, that I wanted to, to interact with. Um, and yeah, I would say reasonably successful. I was no better or worse than anybody else. I, you know, I kept my job, um, let's say over a couple of companies. <laughs> um, I think I made top biller a couple of times, um, typically in recessions, actually, I was a really good recession recruiter for some reason. <laughs> um, uh, but I always followed up my top billing performance with like a very mediocre second year. So I would say I was never, uh, you know, one of these recruitment heroes that you hear about. Um, I was good. I, I'd hire me, let's say, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily build a recruitment agency business around Hungley. <laughs> okay, so you then- know, it's 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 funny you say that because uh, on your twenty-four hour live stream that uh, you had a couple of months ago, you talked about one particular story that you when you decided basically to leave one of the agencies you were working with is you, you were working basically almost half the time and really putting a half-ass effort into it. Then you realize, yeah. okay, this is maybe not the best place for me. Can you relive that story? I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. So this is actually the day I resigned from my last company. And actually the last time I was this operating recruiter uh, as an agency uh, guy, uh, Shirley. So, so mm-hmm. essentially so I must have got drunk the night before or something. This is back in the era where, you know, I was doing what, you know, London-based agents would do, which is go out and, and party hard. Um, but I, I, was, I was very hungover, very tired, um, and, but also very experienced as a recruiter. Yeah. Um, so I was able to leverage my experience to basically conduct this screening call with this candidate um, in such a way that I was able to kind of ask certain questions which I knew would trigger a long response from this candidate. Um, mm-hmm. And I asked those questions in order for me to take like a micro nap um, <laughs> because I knew this guy was, was going to talk like for at least 60 seconds when I asked him this question. Um, and I just ended up having to sort of, uh, you know, wake myself up to ask another question to trigger another long answer and then get myself another couple of minutes of sleep. Um, I did all of this. Um, and you know, I, I put the phone down and I thought, wow, Hong, you really know how to do this. Um, you know, you were operating at probably 2% of, of, of mental energy, um, doing the screening call. Uh, and I momentarily, I was like kind of slapping myself on the back. Um, uh, but then I realized, you know what, I have actually, I've checked out of this business. Um, I realized very clearly at that point, you know, having sort of had that moment self-congratulation, I realized, wow, what have I just done here? Um, you know, I've entirely disrespected this person who's looking for a job. Um, even if he might've been unaware of it, I totally disrespected it, because uh, I wasn't in this conversation. I was absolutely not present. Mm-hmm. Uh, disrespected my boss, disrespected my company, disrespected my uh, my job, disrespected what I was doing, you know, myself. I just basically got to the point where everything had become so routine uh, and, and so you know, into the muscle memory yeah. that I was able to just execute on this without any kind of emotional content at all. And I just, put, uh, you know, having thought about that, again, this, this is in moments, right? So a moment of self-congratulations, then moment of shock to say, what the hell has happened? Uh, and then I remember putting the phone down and I resigned straight away. Um, uh, I just went to my boss and said, listen, I'm out. Um, and uh, that was it. That was, and it was all amicable. It was no tragedy leading up to it. I was doing okay in the year and all that type of stuff. But I just realized I couldn't ever have another type of conversation like that again. Um, and, 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 you know, not be there um, when you're having uh, that type of dialogue with the person. Wow. God bless you for being so honest. You know, um, I, I can absolutely picture, like as you tell the story, I can absolutely picture it. Um, wow. And how, how honest to, uh, to make that decision. So then 
you know, so that obviously was your decision to jump out of agency. What's interesting is, um, you know, I also spent a good 11 years in agency as well. Um, never thought I'd leave. I loved it. I loved being an agency until realized there really was nothing more. There was nothing new to learn. So that's when I moved on. But so, so tell us then what was, what was the trigger for you to start recruiting brain food? Like, where did that, where did you come up with that? I mean, it's, it's just, it's such an amazing um, thing that you do. So why? Yeah. Uh, you know what? One thing you should know about me, Shelley, and, and by the way, all of your listeners should know this about me, uh, is, is that generally speaking, whenever I plan something, it never happens. Um, so so I, I decided a little while ago basically not to have any strategies. Um, uh, you, you know, God bless just you. like feel your way forward and then figure it out from there. So um, uh, what is that sort of uh, proverb where, you know, you should cross the river by feeding for, for the stones under your feet? Um, because at the end of the day, you don't know what you're doing. Uh, and this is the truth with recruiting brain food. You know, it was never a plan to create this, um, certainly never a plan to create, uh, you know, what is, uh, what is now a, a media business. Um, it was really just, a, a, a it emerged from a problem I personally had, um, uh, which was that there was so much great content out there for recruiters on the internet. Uh, but it was submerged by all mm-hmm. of the clickbait and crap that's around. And it's obviously getting worse and worse every year. But mm-hmm. even back then, which is now three and a half years ago, it was like I would find a great article after having swam through like 25 different bits of crap that literally, you know, you didn't want to ever pay attention to again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I ended up just collecting these things. So I realized I'm a bit of a collector of things generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I collected these links, these articles, these sources. Um, I think I was using um, Pocket to do it, uh, something like that. Um, and I, I'm actually a decent archivist, you know, <laughs> so I don't know whether this is my anthropology background, but I tag things, um, oh. and I'm quite good at categorizing it and stuff like this. And after sort of doing this for a little while, I realized I actually had a pretty good database of great content that I've actually mm-hmm. categorized and, you know, I could refer to. Um, and it just occurred to me, I guess that, you know what, um, why don't I just make that public? If it was useful for me, then maybe it might be useful for other people. Um, uh, you know, it's no more work, uh, or, you know, a little bit more work, um, to make it public. Um, and, and the idea of just creating this type of thing into a newsletter just emerged from that, you know, it's like, okay, uh, there's lots of great stuff on the internet, very difficult to find, but if I find it, I'm going to archive it and then I'm going to share it. Uh, and if people like it, then great. If they don't, that's, that's okay too. Um, and, uh, and that's basically how, how recruiting brave food started. Well, and I love the tie back to your anthropology degree. I knew, I knew it had to come around somehow. <laughs> so that is, that is so interesting. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, uh, I love that. I love that. It took you a while to get um, a subscriber growth. Like where, when was the tipping point? I know the first time I heard about it was when you appeared on the Chat and Cheese podcast. And it's the first time I actually heard about you. But at one particular point, you went from having no traction, no really subscribers, and to obviously start growing to the point where it is now. Can you, can you point out a particular time that you're like, boom, this is starting to catch on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because I track this as well. So one of the things I'm decent at is also yeah. tracking these things. Um, and I can tell you, you know, when you're starting anything, nothing happens. It literally, it, you, the first the first newsletter I sent, it, it basically, like, I was so incompetent at doing it. Um, there was, I think there was only ever one subscriber to the first new recruiting brain food. Um, and, and that was myself. Um, so, so basically I sent the newsletter to myself. Like I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and so there was no growth strategy, none of this. So, you know, these kind of, you know, amazing marketing type, type things that you can do. I didn't know any of that. Um, I just kept plugging away at it, uh, again, with no objective to grow right? Which helped you plug away, interestingly enough. So it taught me about intrinsic motivations to a large degree. Um, because it means that your, your resilience is very, very strong when you have these intrinsic motivations so that, you know, zero growth was no setback. Cause you know what, I was going to do this anyway. Um, uh, you know, it was almost like, I don't mm-hmm. care about growth. I'm just going to do it. So 
I was plugging away. Um, uh, uh, there was uh, essentially, uh, I, w- I was going to do this regardless, right? But I do know the moments when it started spiking. And that's when probably the first time someone actually mentioned it online as something they should pay attention to. Um, and that shocked me because I thought, oh, wow, you know, uh, someone's actually read it. Um, but not only have they read it, they've gone to go ahead and, and have actually recommended it publicly to other people in, in all of these, you know, effusive terms. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And, uh, and, and this guy, you know, he was well connected in his particular space. So suddenly we've got a bunch of people starting to subscribe to it. And it was a, bit, a little bit of a bump on the subscriber numbers. And I just thought, wow, that's really cool. Um, uh, that's, that gives me a little bit of a sign that, um, uh, you know, th- things are propagating uh, without artificial leverage. Um, so we're in this world now, of course, you know, the COVID-19 world, we all know about reproduction numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we've all become very good at viral growth now because we, we're kind of monitoring the PD, the, uh, the disease transference, but uh, a sort of uh, spreading. But viral growth, of course, comes from biology. And it told me a little bit about how this works, where, you know, if you're able to get basically one subscriber to recommend to two subscribers, then that's how the thing kind, kind of moves. Okay. Um, and when I saw, uh, this guy, Mark, by the way, Mark Trotto, big shout out to you, uh, when he sort of promoted, it, I thought, wow, that's cool. Um, but that may be one of the ways in which you can grow this. If you can somehow encourage people, um, to promote it, um, uh, you know, get, get the subscribers to support you. Um, and it turns out if you do get subscribers, you're going to get a load that are not interested really, you know, they just subscribe because their boss told them to, um, or because they feel some obligation. Um, but you do get a percentage that become like massive fans. Um, and, and they're, they're hugely invested in it. I am a fan of other newsletters. I'm a fan of other YouTube channels and stuff like that. So I totally understand the fan fan concept. Um, and once you have that sort of, uh, a fan base, so to speak, um, then, then that's a really powerful thing to have because those people are going to go bad for you, you know, um, and, uh, and, and they're going to be the key to, 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 to making the thing grow. Wow. Um, do you know, I, I, so let me, let me be clear. I'm a fan. I look through your, um, newsletter. I subscribe and I am constantly blown away by just the sheer, like the quality of the content and just the, just the sheer volume. I mean, it's really impressive. Um, and I never thought, like when I found it, it was like chocolate, you know? Like it's going to melt in my hands. Like holy cow. So now it's like I got to tell everybody. So you're right. Like I get how, how it was. I was, um, you know, I, I think I talk a lot about it now because it's just such a great resource. Uh, it, and, you know, as an entrepreneur myself, I know there are lots of times I struggle just hours in the day. So, so mm-hmm. how do you manage to get, all, like, to, I just can't even get my head around it sometimes, just the sheer volume and the quality, and you're the CEO of Workshape. Like, yeah. How, how, um, do you, how do you do it? <laughs> yeah, so once again, I mean, I, I don't do either of those things very well. You know, it's, it's like, it, it's, I don't think you can really monitor or maintain uh, everything at optimum level. It's, it's a trade-off. Um, okay. And... I think the key thing about sort of being able to do something like brain food is that it, I don't actively source the content. A lot of people kind of oh. assume that that's what I'm doing, um, where I'm spending time literally, you know, scouring the internet for, for stuff. Um, but the reality is the, the, the trick to do it, if there's such a thing, uh, is simply to be uh, present uh, where this information flows by you. Um, so I, I, I sort of, the analogy I would use would be uh, instead of like swimming in the ocean, trying to catch the fish, um, uh, what you want to do is stand in the river where the fish are going to swim by. Um, and if you understand where to stand and which rivers to be in, then you're going to catch some really interesting fish. Cool. Um, and that's basically how the content sort of collection and curation works. So I'm not out there um, doing a lot of the, uh, and I think actually, you know, when you get like a competitor type of uh, uh, newsletters that are out there, which I've seen, by the way, some of them are really good. But I've even seen think, people like LinkedIn try to do curated newsletters of this type. Um, but they struggle to really go beyond the, the mainstream. 
Um, uh, and one of, one of the things I think you get with brain food is that I'm, I'm hoping to surface up content that you would otherwise not discover through other channels, right? For sure. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's tons of great content on mm-hmm. Forbes, for instance. But you know what? Is there a huge amount of point in me sort of showing you, hey, this is a great article in Forbes when you've already read that? Uh, no, I mean, it's much more interesting, I would say to, to you, for me to be able to yeah. give you, hey, this random blogger somewhere has written this really insightful post that literally three people have read, but you should read that. So um, it's all about being in the networks of where this interesting content is produced, being super sensitive to who seems to have an interesting voice um, and, and and just tracking them along. So. And that's basically uh, the, the, uh, how the content sort of, at least that's uh, how a percentage of the content arrives. Uh, the, a second and growing sort of chunk of it is actually now coming from the community itself. So um, I'm fortunate enough where I've got people who are fans that are submitting stuff they've discovered. Yeah. Um, and I had no idea about it, but it's like, wow, that's, that's amazing. Um, and they're in these networks as well. And, and they, again, this is a, pure altruism they just want other people to see it and they know that via brain food it's a it's a decent amplification for that um and and they often submit it through so so those are the two main kind of ways in which content is discovered really exactly and what i like about it though as i'm reading through and i think i've been a subscriber for around a couple of years it's funny you say that because i actually referred the um your uh, your newsletter directly on my LinkedIn and shared it with my network. Uh, so it's obviously working that strategy. But what I really like about it, it gives real tactical advice on, um, like I've seen one as far as where we focus. And the same thing for your podcast as well. You're giving real tactical advice. One episode that I really loved about your podcast is you go in depth on how to do Facebook targeted ads. Is this part of your strategy as far as giving tools to recruiters that they can use directly after reading or listening to you? Oh, remember there's no strategy, Serge. Um, so, <laughs> oh, we missed that. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, honestly, the there isn't. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's a bit facetious to say zero strategy. There's a vague general sense of direction, right? So I know where this, where the direction is. So I, I know where the North Star is. Um, but there's no mapped out path to get there. Um, where, where the, the practical how to's go is, is generally when I want to find it out myself. You know, I mean, I, yeah. I see myself generally as incompetent at many, many things in the recruitment sort of uh things that you can do i think uh, it was social talent actually uh uh, uh the irish guys johnny campbell's group uh, who broke down all of the activities that a recruiter does all of the skills that they need and they you know, there's a hundred as of a hundred plus activities that go into this ostensibly simple job of, of recruiting people um and if i looked at all of those things i would say i was a mediocre at best and borderline incompetent at a vast majority of that stuff. Um, and so when I find a sort of opportunity to learn about it, I'm diving straight in thinking, whoa, that's interesting. So the, the practical stuff is, is genuinely about um, probably me identifying something I don't know, um, thinking, hi, that's really interesting. Um, maybe I can find out about that. Um, and, uh, you know, if there's a guest out there that knows something about it or there's a source that's really cool, then, yeah, let's surface that up and then uh, let's share it out. Um, and you know, hopefully people are interested, um, sometimes not, but you know, uh, sometimes there's enough people that share, you know, uh, an understanding of my, uh, sort of share, if you like a gap in the knowledge and they, they, they want to use this as a, as a way to fill it. Mm. Wow. It's almost like you, um, you've got, you've got some really good sensors out there, I think, because your, your ability to, although you claim to have no strategy from my perception being on the receiving end. It's like, this is brilliant. Like, this is sheer genius uh, because there's always something there that I, like you say, there's no way I would have ever come across this. So, um, yeah, I think, I think you downplay just, just how much goes into this. But, um, you know, I, I, I'd like you to share a little bit, too, about um, Workspace.io. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I don't know if you're going to say that you had no strategy, I'll call bullshit. Like, come <laughs> on. Um, so, so no, really. So where, like, give us kind of the, you know, the aha moment that you decided, okay, I'm going to fix this. And what were you okay. trying, what was, what was the thing you were trying to fix? 
Sure. So again, there was again, no strategy, right? Um, And uh, that is definitely true. Um, (laughs) So so what tends to happen is um, if you hang around with a bunch of smart people, like amazing things happen. So uh, I was recruiting for a startup at the time uh, that was growing really rapidly and I was responsible for for hiring software engineers. Um, So I ended up doing that. Um, hired about 20, 30 of them. And of course, if you hire 20, 30 engineers, you of course have made contacts and connections with 300 engineers, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, emerging from this experience, I was having like a, this huge network of people that were really, that gone really well with, I really understood sort of uh, where they, they were coming from and their challenges and so on. I like to think they also, you know, uh, got to learn a little bit about recruitment as well by me, and we we became good friends. Uh, and and to this day, you know, those those folks are are, are good friends of mine uh, in many cases. And we came across this problem, um, which was, you know, what? Why do um, uh, sort of why do recruiters always ask um, uh, questions that uh, pitch jobs to software developers that developers aren't interested in? Um, uh, you know, why is the, uh, why are they always, you know, opening up with, Hey, I've got this amazing job. It's Q pitch. And then yeah. the developer has to listen to that for 20 minutes and say, actually, no, I really want to do that. Um, and Backwards, the, yeah. The an- yeah, the answer we had to that is that obviously all the information a recruiter has is, is historical. Um, uh, you know, every bit of information that we have on a human being as a candidate is Agreed. historical, is a historical artifact. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a resume or a CV or an online profile, even a GitHub repo um, or whatever it is, it's all stuff this person has done in the past. Um, and we thought, you know what, there's the missing inf- information here is what this person wants to do in the future. Um, and of course, job discovery, getting a new job is entirely about that future. Um, and so we have this tiresome ritual where, you know, we're asking these developers, hey, what do you want? Um, or, hey, is this the right job? When, in fact, this developer may have sort of answered that question three times already that morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but because the historical information is all the recruiter has, that's the, that's, that, that question needs to be asked. So we thought, okay, maybe it's a way in which we could capture aspirational data, meaning mm. can we capture what the developer wants to do? Um, and can we make that into a sensible way for a recruiter to, to that recruiter can understand and map that to a job? Um, and all of this basically evolved into thinking, okay, maybe we can translate a job into a time distribution. Um, in other words, you know, instead of describing a job textually, we could maybe describe a job uh, as uh, in a quantified way in terms of time over tasks, um, or if you like, focus over tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what a workshape is. It's basically a focus distribution across generic software engineering activities um, that anybody can see at a glance. Oh, this person much prefers to do front-end engineering rather than DevOps, um, in which case I don't need to bother him with a call for this full-stack engineer job that actually requires a significant component of DevOps. Um, I know this person definitely wants to do just front-end I'm going to wait until I've got a front-end job. So the entire idea was to basically eliminate that what do you want to do call. Um, you know, Can we get rid of that discovery call at the beginning and then dive straight into a substantive conversation where people can say, hey, it looks like you're interested in that. We've got this. Do you want to talk? Um, and that's basically what Workshape is. No strategy, I have to say. <laughs> this is all discovered through the building of it. We never actually intended to build a business. It was literally um, a little project that a friend of mine who actually spoke to you yesterday, um, Gordon Dent, um, and, and he, he just built this thing. And we realized, oh, you've built half of it because he built basically the visualization side from the candidate part. And we thought, hey, that's cool. We've got basically a pretty CV generator. Um, wasn't particularly interesting. Um, but then we said, hey, what if we got the employers to kind of do the same thing on their side and design a job in this way? Um, uh, wouldn't that be quite cool to be able to then create a matching service out of it? And then before you know it, we built that thing. Um, and it was it was out there, people were using it, and, and off you go. So, um, so yeah, uh, that was the general concept of, of Workshape. It's basically trying to find out what people want uh, without them having to constantly verbally say it. Wow. That's, uh, that's an incredible story. 
<laughs> Thank you for sharing that. It's, uh, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. So well done. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, so I'm curious. So being uh, you spend a lot of time in the tech recruitment space and um, I, in, in my mind, tech recruitment is the hardest thing to recruit, especially based on the uh, even with the current economy, tech recruitment is always going to be there. So I'm curious. We have a lot of tech recruiters listening to us and I want to be able to give them some advice or at least some tactical uh, things. So today, if I'm a tech recruiter, what's the main thing that I should focus on to improve my skills? You know what? It's These are so difficult to give advice at this point because the world has changed so dramatically yeah. in such a short space of time. I, I think, you know, what three months ago I'd be giving you a list of bullet points, which would be, you know, probably a consensus view uh, as to as to what people can do. Um, these days, I think the game has changed. I think it does fundamentally shift a lot of the the skills that are important. Um, recruitment generally is still going to happen, but we can anticipate far less of it uh, will happen. Um, so I think right now the, the recruiters who are out there listening to this, not only do they need to improve their skills and upskill, but they also need to securitize their own revenue and their own job security uh, and their own marketability as, as, a, as a top priority. Um, uh, uh, for instance, you look at uh, Airbnb cutting staff, you look at Uber cutting staff, mm -hmm. you know, uh, loads of companies, loads of platform plays, lots of organizations. Uh, are going to have to start doing this. Um, and I think it would be a mistake, for instance, for recruiters to um, overly index on stuff they were doing before COVID um, and ignoring the stuff that they might need to do now. So let's translate all of this into English. Um, I would say that the main thing recruiters should do now is to, uh, number one, um, make sure that your profile is high. Um, so I know most recruiters don't have a problem with this, but at the same time, we're very used to one-to-one -one messaging rather than one-to-many messaging. Um, meaning that we uh, you know, send lots of emails, so we make lots of calls, uh, but it's usually to one person uh, or one person can see that message even if it's a big mail merge push, right? So I'm not talking about, when I say one-to-many, I mean having a conversation that's publicly observable um, so that other people can potentially participate. Um, I don't think recruiters do this enough, um, uh, but they certainly should do this um, because it's the best way to increase your profile, which I believe is going to help you um, uh, be competitive um, in, uh, in, in your own job discovery, uh, in your own kind of career path. It would also make you a better recruiter, by the way, um, uh, because it means that you'll have uh, uh, more credibility uh, in the marketplace that you're trading in. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you'll have uh, more internal credibility if you're kind of working in a business. General sense of visibility is a big part of being in business, sadly enough. Um, it's not just purely about your performance. So there's, um, there's a really interesting theory to say, uh, you know, if your core activity uh, of your core skill um, is measurable, absolutely measurable, then your uh, profile probably doesn't matter that much. Um, so in other words, if you are running a 100-meter sprint um, uh, and you were able to do that in 9.5 seconds, um, it pro you probably don't need to pay too much attention to PR. Um, because you can absolutely run faster than anyone else on the planet. It's, it's absolutely measurable and absolutely objective. Mm -hmm. However, if you're doing a job where the performance is not necessarily all measurable and there's a lot of intangibles as to your quality, then you do need to pay attention to your PR um, because a lot of people are not going to be able to track how good you are as a recruiter based on these intangibles. Classic example, right now, lots of companies are not hiring. If you're measured on how many hires you're making, guess what? It doesn't look too good. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. You're not making any hires. That's not your fault. Um, yeah. But there's no measure, right? So that means that you need to invest a lot more in your profile, um, uh, which means, you know, uh, being a little bit more conversation-led in a public sense, uh, doing uh, content, um, having open conversations where people who and not your anticipated audience can still discover it and, uh, and participate. 
Um, so I think it's important that recruiters think a little bit about that and, and do some of it if, if they can. How important is it for tech recruiters to actually understand technology in the sense? So obviously they're not going to have the knowledge of a full stack developer front end, but how critical is, is it for them to have as much technical knowledge as possible? In my view, quite a lot. Um, I, I think this pertains to your passion for the industry and your credibility with the people who you're talking to. Um, I, I think if you speak to any uh, candidate, no matter uh, sort of that is in a vertical, uh, that is a highly specialized type of person, uh, the most annoying thing they have is when they're speaking to someone who doesn't know the industry um, yeah. and doesn't know the content of the job. Um, so yeah, I think for tech, you need, you need to know. I don't think you need to be a coder. Um, uh, you know, I don't think you need to be someone who's done that, um, but you need to know how things are built and you need to know how, you know, uh, what these systems are. Uh, it's not just keyword search. Um, a little bit of depth is, is a great thing, uh, to try. And thankfully there's lots of, you know, information out there for recruiters to upskill a little bit on this. Um, uh, you know, go to Udemy or Coursera or even YouTube, right? <laughs> you, can, you can free stuff. Uh, where you can go, you know, basics on Java or something. Um, uh, just go do that. Um, it's a friend of mine called Erin Matthew. I don't know whether you know her. Um, no. She's a tech recruiter. She works at, I think, Maxar Technologies now. Um, but she's really cool at exactly this. Like, how do we get to a point where you can have a conversation with the developer um, and you understand what that person is saying? Um, well, actually, treat yourself as a beginner developer. Um, uh, you know, and go on some of these courses as if you might actually be a programmer at some point. Um, you don't ever have to intend to do that uh, career path or perform those functions, but simply absorbing it as a student uh, will really help bed it down uh, for you in terms of your uh, your ability to uh, have dialogue with uh, with these folks. Um, so yeah, I think it's important. I'd rank it quite highly uh, amongst the things that tech recruiters should 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 uh, you know focus on. You know, what's, what's interesting, and if I could just uh, chime in on this, Hung, is um, I started tech recruiting in the early 90s because I had been a, a developer myself. Uh. Back in, I had a whole other career before I um, fell in love with, with recruitment. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Even though back then, all the, obviously, technology was a fraction of what it is today. But that's how I actually built my entire uh, recruitment practice was around tech recruiting. And that's exactly why I believe um, I had the response that I did. And I genuinely love hearing people talk about, um, and you can feel it in their voice. You can see it on their face. When anybody starts talking about something that they're passionate about, and to me, it's, you know, I'm kind of become almost agnostic to industry or job family because I believe it's that, you know, getting someone to talk about what they love to do. And, you know, so whether it was, you know, back then, you know, you know, hardware, software, no matter what it was. Um, and that was kind of, for me, the light bulb moment is when you realize that recruitment is about getting people to tell you what, like, what's their heart's desire, right? The aspirational mm -hmm. Um, what they see, like, tell me, tell me what you see and tell me your vision. So, you know, even, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, okay, boomer, because, you know, recruiting back in the early 90s for, you know, what we thought was going to be the, you know, obviously, the world was going to end uh, when the clock turned over to the year 2000. The millennium <laughs> bug, absolutely yeah, no, right. I was taught, um, I was full on, full in, in that whole Y2K, um, the what what would we call it now i mean it was yeah i mean it was it was it was such a crescendo leading up to you know would the lights go off and should we be in 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 down in bunkers somewhere but yeah yeah you know, i mean all that to say i i totally um understand what you're saying like it was because i get it i get i get what developers are facing but moreover people in general 
Exactly. Well, speaking the same language is very important, no matter in what industry you're recruiting to, to your point of being agnostic. Uh, so if you're going to re be recruiting drivers, well, you should understand what the day in the life of a driver and what the skill sets yeah. are needed. So I, I completely agree with tech recruitment. It's really important. So one of the things that I, I want to talk to you about, uh, and you've been talking quite a bit about it, and uh, it's interesting because I always feel that recruitment is 20, 30 years behind to normal trends sometimes. And the one that I look at is programmatic advertising. Programmatic advertising on the consumer side was launched in, what, 98, 99. Uh, it's really only starting to make a dent in the recruitment world right now or in the past two, three years, especially last year with the acquisition of um, of AppCast to StepStone, Click IQ. So the list goes on and on. So just curious your thoughts overall on where we're going on the attraction side. Is programmatic advertising really going to make a huge dent in the recruitment world and how we leverage it? And is it something that you think that the indeeds of the world are, are scared about? Obviously, by buying Click IQ, it's they they see the future. But what's your overall thoughts on the programmatic advertising side of it? Yeah, I think it's a very compelling argument, um, and, and I'm, I'm I'm well connected with the guys that run that. Uh, you know, I know Christian from way back. Um, good friends with uh, Bev and Rich at ClickIQ as well. Um, and and yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, um, if you're able to present um, uh, a, 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 an offering to a customer to say, "Listen, we're going to make it cheaper and better for you," <laughs> um, it's it's basically a no-brainer. Um, that the barrier to entry really on programmatic is just the lack of knowledge and lack of understanding. Um, and once that knowledge gap has been bridged, um, then I think it will become the default way in which we do uh, uh, a lot of the job distribution, let's say. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's going to be significant. Once again, we have to put a COVID lens on it, though, um, because mm -hmm. I think it was certainly more interesting pre-COVID uh, when people were competing for, uh, for a small amount of candidates. Um, uh, it, was, uh, it was very much about, um, uh, you know, where you're going to put chips in the right place. Uh, let's say we go to a, a different world post-COVID and it becomes a candidate-rich market. Um, do you actually want to put ads out? Um, uh, you know, that's, that's a... It's a very legit problem now because if you're going to post an ad in a candidate-rich market, uh, you ha you will have a different uh, set of problems now, mm -hmm. which means an overwhelming number of applicants per se, um, and you've got a filtration and assessment problem. You may still be hitting the right people, um, but they'll be buried again and, and amongst yeah. all of those folks. So it was actually I did a survey maybe a year ago. Um, it was uh, it was again another failed project. So I've got loads of failed projects, by, by the way, guys. Um, and and it was like oh. Uh, I guarantee you, <laughs> Shelley, <laughs> I could show you a big list. Um, but um, the uh, one of the things I wanted to do is to just identify, you know, what were the key problems um, that recruiters faced at a global in a global context, mm -hmm. um, uh, in their local context, but in a global way. Because at that point, recruiting brain food, recruiting brain food had ten thousand people uh, subscribed to it, and hundreds of people in different countries all over the world. And I thought, hey, it'd be quite interesting to do like. Um, uh, comparison between what what are the challenges um, in different countries, uh, and one of the questions I asked every one of these uh, survey respondents was, okay, what is the primary challenge that you have as a recruiter? Um, and every country, apart from one, uh, said candidate acquisition. Um, everyone said there's a war for talent. We can't find the people. Um, it's, uh, it, it, that's the crisis. That's why I'm spending money on sourcing. I'm spending money on tools. I'm spending money on adverts, agencies, everything. We can't hire, we can't find people to hire. Only one country. Um, you and know, what was that country? Can you guess? Canada. No. Oh. Hope, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wishful was in, thinking. It, I was going to say India. Australia. No, it was India. India. Um, and the respondents from India basically said uh, the number one problem for them uh, was assessing the candidates. Mm. Um, and of course, India is remarkable because it's, it's one of the very few countries that has a massive surplus of technology graduates. Um, it produces a million graduates, IT uh, software engineers every year. Um, and therefore, they don't have an acquisition problem they have a filtration and assessment problem because every time they post an ad out, they get 200 responses. 
um, uh, to the point that they stopped putting the ads out because it was easier for them to do sourcing um, uh, rather than have to pile through all of these candidates and of course deal with responses and you know candidate experience and employer branding and all that type of stuff that you then need to do. So I think um, let's imagine a post-COVID world where there is a surplus of candidates in many, many sort of types of uh, role function uh, and job family, um, then perhaps putting adverts, whether they're programmatic or not, might actually trigger too many responses. Yeah. And then suddenly your recruitment uh, uh, crisis shifts uh, down the funnel to assessment uh, and filtration rather than attraction. So, so yeah, the answer to your question, yeah, programmatic, if, 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 we, if we isolate it purely down to you know, posting job ads, is program, programmatic going to win that? Uh, yes, it is. Um, uh, but if you kind of take a zoom out a little bit and think, what is the amount of attention we're going to be spent on posting ads? I think generally that's going to shrink. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny you say, I actually filled out your survey. And by the way, that was probably the longest survey I ever did. Uh, I'm, I remember so <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, no, sorry. I quite, I quite enjoyed it. It actually made me dig deep to, uh, to find the answers. So it was, uh, it was interesting. So you're, you're so right. Cause, uh, obviously I'm in tech recruitment and I've seen a huge shift since basically since COVID and looking at assessing candidates is probably the biggest challenge. Even if I'm not putting an ad out, I'm still getting uh, a large flow of candidates. So what's your advice as far as how we can do a better job? And I'm not talking about tech in general, just in to assess candidates. Um, there's a lot of discussion about AI candidate matching. There's a, there's a lot of different solutions out there, but how should, um, a recruitment leader approach that side of the equation. Wow, I mean, I think there's 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 uh, one of these where it's it's going to be difficult to put uh, a singular response to it yeah. because a lot of these things are so contextual. Um, you know, uh, like what is the the current situation in your business? What is the attitude of your hiring managers? Uh, you know, how easy can you shift strategy? Sometimes you've got like a, a way of doing quote unquote, and it's like, you can't shift this tanker. There's no, no way you can move it. So I think, uh, uh, with that said, um, I think one of the ways in which tech recruiters could do this is to be, um, uh, we need to get stronger at authentic employer branding, I would say. Yeah. Um, uh, and by that, I mean, you need to almost deter, uh, candidates, uh, that are not, kind of aligned to what it is you do um, in a way that will help you reduce the applicant flow, um, but also improve the quality in the sense that people that do go through at least know what the story is. Um, and and but there's, a, there's a really great blogger who I've featured a couple of times, even though she's got nothing to do with recruitment usually. Um, she's a, I think a systems, um, She's some sort of DevOps person, I think, working for some unknown company in, in, in San Francisco. I think she keeps it kind of secret. Um, but she's got a blog called uh, uh, Rachel by the Bay, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, uh, she writes about, hey, listen, just tell, it, tell, tell the truth about what, this, what the job is. Um, like, let's take away the varnish. Um, uh, tell us what's wrong about this thing. Uh, you know, what is the problem that causes you to need to recruit this person? Um, why is this job an unpleasant thing to do? Um, tell all of that um, because uh, a, an experienced developer and experienced anybody is smart enough to know um, that this is not just going to be waltzing in and, and uh, you know, uh, having a, a, a roses and rings type of experience. Um, uh, you know, you've got a lot of digging to do. You've got to get your elbow. Uh, you've got to sh- sh- sort of uh, pull up your sleeves and everything. So be very honest about the job. Um, get the people who are currently doing the job or in the team to describe it. Um, so you need to basically take off the, uh, the interpretations that marketing might put on or the interpretations that recruiters might put on because we've kind of got this instinct to, to present well and present it in a, in a, in a, in a certain facet, um, which is you know, often the case, the truth, but it may not be a complete picture. Um, and I think what we could do is tech recruiters um, if we're dealing with this post-COVID world with the candidate-rich market, is to start involving kind of uh, other voices into how we describe the jobs, make them more authentic, make them real, um, lead with a lot of the reasons why it's problematic, um, and you'll you'll hopefully stimulate the right kind of responses coming in. So employer branding should also not, not only is it, are you trying to attract people, you're trying to attract the right people. 
Um, and uh, that is also meaning you're trying to deter the wrong people. Um, so I think that's definitely something that tech recruiters should be uh, having a think about uh, when they go forward. I think that's a really important distinction as far as attracting the right people is actually employment brand, not just attracting everyone. Obviously, you want people to know who you are and how you function, but getting that right candidate saves a lot of time at the end of the day. So, Hung, you've talked a lot. You've given us a lot of information. Uh, so it's it's great to hear what the background of the recruiting brain food, a little bit about WorkShape and just your overall ideas on the industry and what's going on. So I know you're probably one of the busiest men in recruitment right now and you're wanted by everyone. So I really appreciate you joining us. Um, I want to know, so just Googling you, I can find you anywhere, but can you give us a sense of what's the best ways to get a hold of you? Where can people find you? Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm basically everywhere and I'm happy to, to, to converse in most of those places also. So, so the, the, there's no sense that I'm, I'm isolated, uh, in, 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 or siloed away. Um, the best way is obviously the, to get me on the email. So subscribe to the newsletter, uh, recruitingbrainfood.com. I do respond to people there. Um, uh, you know, so you can email me, I do email back. Um, and Again, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Um, I'm going to be there, and and usually, if 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 the, if, if you reach out, I'll 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 be available to to have a chat. Awesome! Wow, this has been. I mean, honestly, I, I, I'm feeling like we've, um, we've just hit the lottery here. Um, such great discussion, Hung. Thank you so much for your time. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.